This episode was brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. Did you know that documentaries such as Planet Earth or Blue Planet use an audio engineer? If you want to make a fantastic, internationally acclaimed nature documentary, then you better go to WilliamMitchellAudio.com. My guest today is India Bulkley. India Bulkley is a photographer based in the U.S. and Kenya. She spent the past five years living and working in Kenya as a safari camp manager and a wildlife photographer. She loves all things animals and nature. And I want to say that it's probably the first time I've read a bio and I didn't mess up a single word in it. Uh, <laughs> Congrats. What's up, India? <laughs> Not much. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really good. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got so much. I wrote so many questions. We probably won't be able to get to all of them. That's but fine. we're going to start out with, with kind of get to get to know you because... I need to get to know you because I don't really know you either. So, uh, are you in New York right now? I am in lovely Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Uh, I'm living oh, cool. with my mom at the moment, which is a fun COVID <laughs> thing going on. Yeah. Um, but I'm originally from New York City. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so you grew up there. I grew up in in the city. Yeah. So a little bit different than Kenya. Yeah. That's what I was gonna kind of jump right into like just all that stuff. <laughs> so. I know you went to USC, so I know you mm -hmm. lived in LA, mm -hmm. and that was like, I mean, I guess you went there right from, from New York City straight to LA, yeah, and then basically straight from LA to Kenya and then lived there for five years, so that's yeah. some pretty dramatic uh, moves. Uh, it was pretty dramatic. But I mean, I guess from New York to LA, that's just like uh, one big city to another, and they're both mm -hmm. in the US, so... Other, other than the weather, I guess it's, it's pretty a mellow change, but... Yeah, weather, people, but I mean, they're both big cities. There's a little bit of a rivalry between the two, but I like yeah. both. Which one's your favorite? You don't have to answer that. Ooh, <laughs> if New York had LA weather, I think I'd, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, yeah. But I'm, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so New York with a little bit of California weather and cool would be, would be great. Uh, what I, I guess what I wanted, why I brought all that up and what I wanted to ask was, uh, so, I mean, did it feel like it took a little bit of time to adjust when you moved to Africa or were you just like, were you just ready to get out of the city and you were ready to go to a brand new place and not be in a, just a giant American metropolis? Um, well, I, so I graduated from USC in May, 2015, and then about a month later moved straight to a very small town in Kenya. So I think, I mean, there are a lot of vibrant cities throughout Africa. So there, I mean, Nairobi is definitely one of them. And a lot of times when I told people, oh, I'm moving to Kenya, they said, oh, great, Nairobi is amazing. You're going to love it. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> I'm moving to a very small town. Um, and it was called Nanyuki. And it was um, quite an adjustment because, it, it, yeah, it had, you know, a few restaurants and bars and grocery stores, but it was pretty remote. Um, and it was definitely, definitely an adjustment. That's really funny because actually that was a question that was going to come up later. So I'll need to, uh, I'll need to find a way to, to uh, rephrase that because I was actually <laughs> going to ask you literally if uh, Nairobi was where you moved first. Um, but uh, what was the name of the town that you, you did move to? It's called Nanyuki. 
and Maybe. it's uh, it's actually fun fact it's right on the equator. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, but it is about three hours north of Nairobi. So it's pretty hot. So everyone thinks that when the re- a lot of places in Kenya are really high altitude, and Nanyuki is one of them. So uh, it it was like I explained it. It's like LA weather all year round. Yeah. So it's beautiful in the days. It's like seventies, and then at night it kind of drastically cools down. So it's perfect weather all year round in most of most of Kenya. It's funny. I actually had I knew that uh, a lot of Kenya had high altitude because of an article I had read. Um, it was a bunch of like uh, sports scientists and uh, mm-hmm. it was like a bunch of uh, people talking about like because Kenyan athletes dominate in the Olympics in the long in long distance and they have yeah. for like for years and years and years and they're like you know what what are all the factors and one of them is that uh, because of the high altitude people have a higher capacity for oxygen so. That's mm-hmm. the one reason I knew that fact. <laughs> yeah, and Elliot Kipchoge, um, I think it was about a year ago, he ran the fastest marathon, and he is from from Western Kenya. That's actually he's the he was the subject of the article I was reading. Oh yeah. Like, why is this guy you know so fast? There's a bunch of others. They have all kinds of reasons. I mean, obviously the high altitude, but that would that could help a lot of people. But they also think mm-hmm. that there's. Uh, a psychological factor and it's that Kenyans have dominated the, these sports for so long that they have that uh, that sense of invincibility like we can yeah. we can never lose uh, in, in these sports and also I think it psychs out uh, athletes from other countries because they're like sure. oh, the Kenyans are gonna win like they always win so yeah they're pretty pretty legendary um let me see what I was gonna say oh speaking of uh Adjustments. So, uh, like, uh, I guess, were you saying like uh, when you when you first got into uh, into Kenya, were you like probably pretty comfy at first, or did it take you some time to be like, oh man, I, I miss I miss like you know the the big city life, all that. Um, I guess I pride myself on being pretty adaptable. I've you know I've always lived in big cities, but I I'm comfortable traveling wherever and I, I adapt, I think pretty, pretty quickly. So I definitely, I think it was a two part adjustment is adjusting to, you know, living life in a different continent, a different country, but also starting my, my working life because I had been in, I had had internships and done jobs, always worked throughout college, but um, I was now starting at a full, a full time job. Um, and so that was an adjustment in itself. So did you move back to New York City uh, from Kenya or did you go to Connecticut? So I moved, I decided about six months ago that I wanted to move back to the U.S. Um, so I came back to New York City around the holiday time this winter. And I was sort of trying to figure out my next move. I had quit my safari job um, and my plan was to be back in New York for a little bit and then move back to Nairobi and um, work as a freelance photographer, maybe do some camp management on the side. Uh, But then I actually got an opportunity to work for one of my favorite photographers in New York. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, and it was just a few months, it was meant to be just a few month projects from January to possibly March. And so I said, I couldn't pass the opportunity up. And I said, great, I'll, I'll stay until March and um, I'll work for him. And then I'll go back to Nairobi. Can you say who, who you're working for? Are you allowed to do yeah, that? Yeah, his name's Elliot Irwin. Okay. Uh, he's one of, yeah, one of the all-time 
great photographers and I was working as an archivist in his studio. So it was just me and a few other people awesome. archiving all his work. Um, but obviously in March, uh, when the project was ending, uh, I had a flight booked back to Nairobi on March 26th. Oh yeah. And, uh, it was like, world, that was like the day, right? Like the day you could. It was like, it was like 10 days after. Um, I like to make it more dramatic and say, yeah, it was right, right when everything shut down, but it was a little bit after. Um, so obviously, uh, the world had different plans for me. So I then came, my family, um, lives in Connecticut. So I came out and I have been staying with them ever since. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess what the question was, uh, what I was going to get to though, was about like those adjustment periods. Uh, like after all that time, like, you know, uh, being a, like a safari manager and doing wildlife photography in mm-hmm. like, in these wide open, like wilderness spaces, was it kind of crazy being like all of, like in, in a city, especially more than just any city, but like a city like New York, that's just, yeah, uh, just enormous. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, I think I'm a pretty adaptable person, but I'm also really, attuned to like stimuli so I mean in New York it's a crazy loud city but the Mara where I lived is also kind of crazy and loud but in a very different way you know looking at it you think oh it's so peaceful and quiet but really I mean it's got you're falling asleep listening to lions and you're it's it's there's constant noise and activity going on and especially in running the camp I ran which was crazy all the time um, New York doesn't seem too far off. Yeah. It's, it's just a different, different type of crazy, a different type of wild. The concrete jungle. Yeah, the concrete <laughs> jungle versus the, the actual jungle or the actual savanna. Uh, here's a question that's, uh, I might be wrong about this, but uh, the, t- the two main languages in Kenya, are they uh, it's English and Swahili, right? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Were you able to pick up any Swahili while you were living there? I was, yeah. I so I when I moved to camp, um, I worked in Kenya uh, a year before I started the safari camp manager job, and I really because I thought it was only going to be a year. I tried, so I learned some greetings and I try and chat with people, but I didn't try too hard. It's kind of like, well, lots of people speak English, you know. I'll make a little effort. Um, but once I moved to camp, I felt pretty silly. I was, you know, I was managing forty people and. I'd say about 15 of them didn't speak a word of English. Oh, wow. And uh, it was, that just wasn't going to work. Um, so I tried really hard that second year, and I did pick up, I'd say, almost a working proficiency in it. So I could, I could work and speak and, and make simple conversation in Swahili. Did you use, like, one of those uh, online apps, or did you just, like, just try really just have people... <laughs> like your friends teach you? Or it was kind of trial by fire. I'm yeah. honestly, I, you know, I'd be sitting in the office the first few months and people would just come in and, and start speaking and I'd freeze. And then slowly I'd start writing things down and I'd ask people who spoke both to repeat things. And people were really patient with me, I think, because people wanted me to learn. Uh, I also had Duolingo, so I would use that when I had some moments, I would just flip through things and try and remember, but it was mostly just kind of getting thrown into it and having really no choice. That's the best way. Yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, I had an experience <clears throat> uh, with, uh, with Spanish with that. So I, I actually mm-hmm. minored in Spanish in college 
And I had thought I had really learned a lot, but honestly, like it's one of those things. So right out of college, I went and I was doing a lot of construction work and I had one particular job where, uh, there was an entire crew of guys. They were all from Guatemala and they didn't speak a lot of English, but they were like the most effective crew. It was, this is a a big, big construction site. They were building like a high rise and I was there setting tile originally, but once the foreman realized that I spoke Spanish, they realized that I was actually more valuable as just an interpreter for this, for this crew of uh, Guatemalan guys who were just, they, they were, the, they were the best crew on the site. So right. it made more sense to like keep paying me as though I was working, but actually just have me go and talk to these guys. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, it was great because I actually feel like I learned more, even, you know, I probably to minor in Spanish, I probably spent like two years of taking, actually taking Spanish classes. Mm-hmm. But the, just like the day to day, like talking with these dudes, it really uh, got me past that point of like, I can read a children's book in Spanish to like, I can have a conversation in Spanish. Yeah. So that's, that's totally really where it's at is just, if you want to learn a language, get around people that speak it. It's, I think it's really the only way. Um, oh, ah, I also have to ask this. So, and you could say, <laughs> you can say no, but. I would love it. Uh, can you teach me how to say something cool in Swahili uh, so that like the next time I meet somebody from Kenya, I can impress them by knowing how to say a little bit of Swahili and maybe some of the listeners that can maybe like memorize it too. Um, uh, anything cool, even a greeting or like how to say yeah. what's up. Okay. So um, if you want to say like, hi, my name is Doug, you can say Jambo Gina Languni Doug. I'm not going to be able to do that first try. <laughs> But Jambo. Jambo. Gina. Gina. Yangu. Yangu. Ni. Ni. Doug. Doug. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already forgetting it, but that's okay. <laughs> and then, okay, an easy one is um, if you want to say hi, like how are you, just say um, Bariako. Bariako? Yes. That's All right. Great. That's okay. That's the one I'm going to memorize because next time I meet someone from Kenya and I can tell that they like, if they have an accent and they probably speak Swahili, I'll be mm-hmm. like, Bariako. Yes. And they'll that, be like, what? Great. and then they'll immediately <laughs> jump into Swahili and I'll be like, oh, that's all I learned. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's a, I mean, that's all you need sometimes. All right. So you heard it here first, guys. If you meet someone from Kenya and if they speak Swahili, say Bariako. It means what's up. And uh, sometimes that's all you got to say, man. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's it's just the little effort put in that people need. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, absolutely. So I know you, you first moved out to Kenya because you got, a, you know, you got a job there right out of college. Did you go straight to like living in a national park? Or I mean, like, is that town absolutely part of a national not. park? <laughs> no. So I, I, when I was graduating from college, or my whole senior year, I, was, I my dream job or industry to work in was international development. So I was interested in working for NGOs, nonprofits, um, and I studied abroad in Cape Town in South Africa and spent a little time on the African continent, worked a summer in Rwanda. So I was curious about working on the continent. And I applied to a fellowship program called Princeton in Africa, which places young professionals interested in international development um, in different organizations on the continent. So I interviewed with this NGO in Kenya and they ended up hiring me. 
um, and it was called the BOMA Project. They give grants to women in um, very remote areas of northern Kenya to start small businesses. And uh, that's where, that's why I moved and that's why, where I was for a year. So it had nothing to do with safari or animals or, or anything like that. It just led me then to my next step. Kind of like uh, just happy coincidences leading you uh, closer and closer to what you ended up doing. Exactly. And I really loved it. I um, worked with a small team in their Nanyuki office, which was the home base. And it was pretty much all Kenyan staff. There was another fellow, um, Alex, who was doing like, more data analysis and I was communications. So I did um, a little bit of like, it was mostly storytelling. So I'd go up into the field in Northern Kenya and interview all the women and write down stories and um, use that to help raise money and to, to show to donors and um, kind of just gather this information of what impact the organization was having, which was pretty big. And it was amazing. I, I traveled to all these incredibly remote regions um, and really that's how I fell in love with Kenya and the people and um, decided that this was some, some place that I'd want to stay for a long time. That's awesome. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, I want to reverse back just a little bit uh, to the part where you originally moved to South Africa because actually this podcast has a lot of listeners in South Africa. Oh, really? Yeah, just, I, I always like to look at my metrics and see where I'm getting, uh, where people listen. And that's, yeah. um, as far as I know, that might be the, the only African country where I get a lot of downloads. Wow. But, uh, but uh, shout out Cape Town and shout out South Africa and thank well, you. Guys. South Africa. <laughs> For sure. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I was there for six months. I did a semester abroad um, and I went to the University of Cape Town and I love Cape Town. If the, yeah, if there was one city I could move to tomorrow, it would be Cape Town. So shout out to you, Cape Town listeners. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, um, one of my favorite movies of all time was filmed, uh, I think right outside of Cape Town. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen uh, Adventure Park? No, I haven't. It's a Johnny Knoxville movie. So okay. it's like a lot of the guys from Jackass, but it's a, but it's oh. not, it's not like a Jackass movie. That's not like stunts and mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a scripted movie and it's based on a true story of a, uh, <laughs> basically it's a, it was an amusement park in New Jersey. That was the most dangerous amusement park that ever existed. And it, its nickname was, uh, uh, class action park because there were so many lawsuits <laughs> but uh, uh -huh. they uh, Johnny Knoxville and all of them decided to go film it in South, Af South Africa for some reason and oh so my goodness. but I listened to uh, some podcasts with those guys and they were all just talking about how much they love Cape Town and that whole it just sounds like a really cool place to visit and I'd love to go it's really amazing it's good I mean I'm a pretty outdoorsy and you know adventurous person so it's good because you get a city a vibrant city with music and culture and good food but then you also have this gigantic mountain in the back where you can go hike and you know do do adventurous things and then in the front you've got the ocean so you've got everything just in this one city it's amazing also i, I love the idea of being able to travel someplace that's like <clears throat> unlike anywhere that i've ever been but <laughs> i can still get by uh being primarily an english speaker yeah <laughs> that's definitely. always a bonus i, I I do pretty well in Mexico. Like mm -hmm. I can go down to Mexico and I can hang and I can, you know, I can like 
even go to a place, you know, places where like nobody's speaking any English and I can get through it a little bit, but I'd have a really hard time if I like went to like, I, I'm just off the top of my head. I don't know. Like if I went to India and it's like some kind of remote area where people weren't speaking a lot of English, yeah. I would probably be bummed out. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of sort of hand, hand gestures and you know, you, you, learn to adapt when you're in remote areas but i mean as english speakers we're so privileged that that's sort of the norm when you're traveling is that if people are going to speak a language for tourism it's going to be english yeah so yeah go us for <laughs> lucking out on that language yeah <laughs> <laughs> hold up it's time for a special announcement as many of you know eminem is a big supporter of this show and he hit me up and he said hey man can I try to send you a, a new intro song to maybe replace the one you have? And I said, hell yeah, man, send it in. I'll play it for the audience. If they like it and they vote on it, we'll put it in. So uh, everyone, here's the song sent in from my good friend, Eminem. If you had one shot or one opportunity to listen to a podcast, would you listen to my views or my own or what? I eat spaghetti, there's spaghetti on my sweater already I hate my mom, spaghetti, Dr. Dre, spaghetti goes, okay You better, my views my own, it's a podcast, you know that You're already listening to it, oh My views my own, it's a podcast, you know that You're already listening to it, oh You can do anything you set your mind to, man Right, pretty cool intro song. Uh, so if you guys want to vote on it, go to myviewsaremyown.com. Let me know what you think. And once again, thank you, Marshall, for sending that in. Now back to the interview. I guess we're going to jump forward a little bit because we, we just left mm -hmm. off of why you very first even ended up in Kenya. Exactly. But, uh, but I know that you advanced to like a pretty more serious job, right? And like you were uh, managing the, uh, the park and the, the safari stuff? Yeah, so I was managing a camp. So I, when I was in Kenya, I met my former partner who was a safari guide and um, lodge manager. So he worked in the tourism industry and I would spend weekends, most of my weekends that first year, um, visiting him in the camp that he ran. And through that, I kind of thought, hey, this is, this is a pretty cool job. Um, and then we ended up going, once um, the year was over, my contract was finished with the NGO and he was ending his contract at the lodge he managed. We decided to then do it together. Um, and so I moved from Nanyuki to the Maasai Mara, which is sort of Kenya's premier wildlife reserve um it's if you've ever heard of the great migration it's where that is it's um home to big cats it, that's primarily why people go what does um, uh, what does maasai mean because i know i've heard this term and i know like like the maasai warriors and like so maasai they're the people i think maasai mara means spotted land okay um yeah, don't quote me on that, Kenyan listeners. <laughs> well, okay. I, just, I was just curious just because I just, 
But I think I think Maasai Mara means spotted land, and it's because there are all these lone trees everywhere. That's kind of the the primary, the distinguishing factor of the landscape. It's all these lone acacia and balanites trees, and it's really beautiful. But I think I, that's I, I, I love that uh, aesthetic. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's really beautiful. Um, but the Maasai are obviously the the tribe and the people that live in that land. Um, have you ever seen the movie Ghost in the Darkness? Okay, so I haven't because <laughs> I, I accidentally, so I, you know, I was pretty brave. I wasn't usually too afraid of animals, um, but I read the book mistakenly while I was in camp. Oh, like, no. With no guests in camp. And I, I but I was, because I was interested. I, people kept telling me, you know, you've got to read these books about these man-eating lions. It's a true story. It's a true story, uh, definitely. And so I read it and I just was so freaked out. And I thought if I put visuals to my imagination, I just, I could not live where I lived. You know, um, uh, so they, they had to get these, uh, part, of the, part of the reason why I brought that up is because <clears throat> those, uh, those lions had, I guess, for some reason, like developed a taste for people. Mm-hmm. And they were hunting all these people that were building uh, railroad. Yeah. And so they got at the at that time, and I don't remember what year this was occurring in, but they got the. Uh, it's in the late, I think, either early 1900s or 1890s. Yeah, yeah, for sure, because uh, there was still a lot of colonialism going on, and that's mm-hmm. what was part of what was going on with like why Britain was there, and they got the world's most famous hunter to come and help out, but he showed up with a bunch of people from the Maasai tribe because they're they were so uh, gifted at like. Deal, like dealing with lions but uh-huh. actually when the Maasai got there they were like oh we can't hunt these lions because they actually had some kind of uh spiritual beliefs about what like about these lions not actually being uh just regular mammals but actually being like more i don't know the whole story is just awesome and so cool and i highly recommend the movie to anyone <laughs> i do too yeah i don't know about the spiritual part but it's definitely i mean the whole story is crazy and um i mean these this hunter would wait in trees and then they then the lions would attack somewhere else then he'd go there the next day and then they'd like they, they were always two steps ahead of him and it's something that should have taken you know not very long took months and months and the stories are crazy. So I, do, I definitely recommend that people watch or read it, but maybe not when you're on safari. And uh, no, no major spoiler alert, but uh, you know, you can go see those lions. Uh, they they yeah. stuffed them and they put them in the uh, Natural History Museum in Chicago. So you can I actually, know. and they're huge. You like, I mean, you go check them out and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> they're so big. Yeah, I, I, one day I will make a pilgrimage to go see them. <laughs> I know, I would I was just in Chicago too and I didn't go. I was like I just had too much stuff to do and I was like yeah. it was one of the things I really wanted to see. Oh. Uh as as the camp manager like what are what are your responsibilities? Like what are you doing there? Oh my goodness. Um everything everything is your responsibility. Was, yeah, well, I guess at the end of the day you were in charge of everything from so I I guess my biggest responsibility I managed a team of 40 people and I explained it to people in the way I, I ran I ran a hotel like you're, you're running a hotel, you're running an operation. So everything from the kitchen to housekeeping to, to guest service. But then you're also um, hosting the 28 guests that we would have there. Uh, so you're in charge of their entire guest experience. 
planning, you know, their game drives and hosting them for meals and really being the person there that's guiding them through uh, their journey on safari. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, it was pretty full on job. I worked about 16 hour days, seven days a week for, for about two to three months. Um, and then we'd get a little, a few weeks off and then go back and do it again. Um, and I loved it. I really, really, truly loved it, but it was also really, truly exhausting. Were you able to like get a lot of time in to, uh, to work on your photography while you were at work? Mm-hmm. So that was sort of where the whole wildlife photography started because I, I've always been a photographer. I, from that first job I had um, at the BOMA project when I was photographing women and making videos, I, it's always been my passion. But I was always very intimidated by wildlife photography because, I mean, you look at all these images and I thought there's no way I could ever compare to these people. They're incredible and and so creative and they have all this equipment. Um, But when I moved to the Mara, I thought, why not? I'm going to try. And so, I mean, we worked pretty full on days, but I try and get out at least once a week just for an hour or two just to take photos. And that's kind of how it started. And um, I'd either go with my partner or with a, with a guide or by myself and just take photos. I, you, I mean, it was right, camp was right in the middle of it all. So you didn't have to go too far. Um, and then obviously in quieter months, I, I got a little bit more time or when friends and family came to visit. Um, but it was really just, that was my priority. Whenever I had a free minute, a free, hour that's what i was doing you have some really really up close photos of like <laughs> lions and stuff yeah and I, i'm aware of like uh telephoto lenses and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but like how close do you have to get to a lion to get like because you have like photos where you're looking right into their mouth when they're like yeah well, that, that last photo i posted <laughs> definitely that was actually one of the first big male lions i ever saw um so yes you're correct in saying that Nowadays, with using telephoto lenses, like us, they've been around for a long time. You really don't have to be that close, and you shouldn't be that close because there are all these rules about respecting animal space, and I'm a firm believer in that. But um, that being said, you can't always control where animals move. So a lot of times, you know, I'd be parked on the road photographing lions from about, I don't know, 30 yards away. But then they'd walk towards you and you're kind of just sitting there taking your photo. Also, when there's a, there's a little bit of a disconnect when you're behind a camera, you're not yeah. really realizing how animals are moving. You're, you're so into taking the photo and capturing the moment. So sometimes they would get pretty close. Um, I'd say the closest I'd ever been was, or I ever was, was five feet away. Whoa, um, from a lion? Yeah, but not, not on purpose. Just yeah. like I said, you can't control you can do your best to make sure that you're respecting their space and staying far away, but they don't care. Yeah. They, they'll just walk right up to the car. Um, I had a lion sit under the car once, a leopard sit under the car. So they're, I mean, they, they, they move however they want to move and you kind of just hold your breath. Uh, here's a question. This might be, might be dumb. Cause I don't really know a whole lot about like, I mean, obviously just like, these kind of animals and stuff like that and mm-hmm. or whatever. But uh, did you like, did you have enough time on the Masai Mara to where you started to like 
for instance, you could like recognize certain animals and like, you know, exactly what, you know, exactly which yeah. one it was. And you're like, Oh, that's uh that's Bob the lion. And you know, like yeah. names, right? Or anything. <laughs> oh, definitely. So funny stories. When I first um, started running the camp, we, um, we would have guests, normal clients come. So, you know, groups, families, honeymooners, but then we'd also get private guides who are, um, who are people that bring their own clients to camp. So they get a family group or something. And I remember within our first few weeks, we had these private guides come and they were sitting around the fire talking to their guests and these lions were roaring in the distance. Um, and they turned to each other and they're like, that sounds like Blackie. Oh, crazy. And I was like, what? Yep. They're like, yep, lipstick and Blackie. That's, that's how they sound. And I honestly thought that they were making it up to impress their clients. I was like, yeah. they've just, they've just pulled these two names out of the hat and they're trying to impress these clients. How crazy. Little did I know that I like a few years later, I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's scar. That's so yeah. the, the recognizable animals like big male lions, um, you could name, they had distinguishing characteristics. I never got to the point. I mean, I only knew scar because he had a giant scar across his face. Yeah. Um, but our guides and we had an amazing guiding team really got to know the different, especially with lions, the different prides, how the family dynamics were. Um, so with bigger cats, you could definitely do it with zebra or giraffe or there's no way, but with yeah, recognizable sure. yeah. ones, you could. <laughs> Or like the hyenas, you can't be like, oh, I know exactly which hyena that is. Yeah. Or am I wrong? I mean, I mean <laughs> well, we had a, a few clans, um, that's what hyenas are called, uh, above camp. So you might not know the individual hyenas, but you could, you could notice which clans because of sure. location, because they kind of stayed in the same area. Um, I did also have mongooses in camp. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, which is was one of the highlights for me. I so I had I wouldn't call them pet mongooses, but they were habituated mongooses. So they would recognize me and kind of follow me around and come. You sit could like feed and, them. Uh, I could not say that I fed them. I would not deny it. But, oh. <laughs> oh, okay, I get it. Oh, if someone asked me, I'd probably say no. But possibly they got some food. Sometimes maybe some sausages. I don't know. Um, but I had one mongoose who had two dots on its head called Spotty. And then I had a <laughs> mongoose whose nose was bitten off called Nosy. Oh. So, yeah, so it's sad for him. But, um, but you really could only notice animals with defining characteristics. Um, so wait, so I, like, so I know mongoose, I mean, I know they kill snakes or whatever. Yeah. But is that like, is that their primary prey like they do they want snakes or they just well, will eat a snake snakes aren't really their prey snake that's more of a defense thing so oh, they, they don't kill them for food they kill them no for no i mean that's kind of like cool and would be a good good meal but they so they are um africa's smallest carnivore the dwarf mongoose and they primarily eat bugs insects eggs um but they I've also seen them kill snakes and that that's just because snakes eat them. Okay. So yeah. there's like, there's enemies. It's not like a, a no, predator, yeah, prey thing. Enemies. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I ever get a snake problem at my house, I'm gonna get a mongoose. Truly. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, so this is going to be kind of like, this is a serious question. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know if this is actually something you even had to deal with, but it's something like I feel very, very strongly about. So I wanted to bring it up and just see like what, maybe if you had any experiences with this. Because basically, I don't know if there's anything uh, on the earth that infuriates me more than uh, trophy hunters that kill endangered species. Mm-hmm. And did you ever have any run-ins with poachers in in the park or like were they, were they ever a problem where you were at like where you were located so yeah i have i have many many thoughts about trophy hunting poaching conservation in general um so i was in the masai mara which is the busiest tourist destination in kenya probably in africa and um also luckily the most open so for a poacher to be successful and to get something like an elephant or rhino, um, they really need to do it pretty secretly. You know, yeah. they, they can't they can't just be in the open with 10 safari vehicles being like, oh, who's that person over there? Yeah. Um, so we were pretty lucky in that I, I did not hear of during the time I was there any any, especially elephant or rhino being killed for their ivory or horn. That being said, there was a lot of human wildlife conflict. Um, we were talking okay. about the Maasai people. They live on the border. They're the community. And so the problem that, um, that they had is that things like lions might go in and say, hey, those are some tasty looking goats over there. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swipe one of those. And it's not their fault because, you know, goats look pretty tasty. Yeah. Um, but the problem was the retaliation. So then community members might put out some poison for the lions and then, you know, lion, lion would get poisoned, then the vultures would get poisoned, then the hyenas would get poisoned and it was, it would totally mess with the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of poaching, not, not completely, but there definitely is conflict. And um, certainly in other parts of Kenya, I mean, there were there are parks where rhino can't be left alone and they constantly have to be guarded because it's it's that serious. And it's frustrating. I'm, I feel very lucky that I never had to witness anything. Um, yeah. But I have seen animals with, with snares and um, animals sick from poisoning. So it's, it's very complicated. And, you know, they're more people in the world and less space for animals and it's it's sad and luckily there are a lot of organizations um especially in the mara working to remedy that and to protect our spaces and our animals but it's a pretty pretty bleak i i would also assume i guess that in the Masai mara being so popular and being such a Mm -hmm. destination they've Mm -hmm. got a probably a pretty good force of uh, rangers and people that yeah. are there to protect the animals. So they do, they've, they've got <laughs> rangers um, for the park, but then they've also got um, the Kenya wildlife trust and our elephant project and the Ann Ken Taylor fund. There are all these amazing organizations working with the community, working to protect and educate people um, to, to educate tourists about how they can help. Uh, so it was really inspiring getting to spend time with people from those organizations and seeing how passionate the, the people are. Because um, it's um, important. Not to keep doing this, and this will be probably be the last time I ask you about a movie. <laughs> I've already brought up, this will be the third movie I've brought up 
but this one's a documentary, so it's a little bit uh-huh. different. Uh, have you seen the documentary Game Changers? I haven't. No, it's on Netflix. It's a uh, so it was produced by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and it's all about athletes uh, converting to plant-based lifestyle. Oh. And, uh, it's actually re- it's really really interesting. Like you know you know the strongest man in the world is a vegan. That's good to hear. I am also plant-based. I call myself a flex vegan. I sometimes eat animal products and that's, fish. Yeah, that's, that's that's how I live. I'm yeah. I need I needed to know a word, so that's cool. I'm a flexi vegan because yeah, because yeah, I go. like I am like you, and I'm I'm an animal lover, and that's the main reason why I don't want to be mm-hmm. especially not eating factory farmed animals. But the real the real vegan uh, people would never accept me into their group no, no. because I'm not yeah. I'm not nowhere near legit. <laughs> We're too flexible. I'm way too flexible. Yeah, uh, but anyways, the in that documentary, there's one part that's interesting. It's it's uh, it reminds me. It's it's kind of like what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And there's a part where they have this dude, he's like an ex-Special Forces guy, and but he loves rhinos and uh, elephants and shit. And so he, uh, he, like, he moves out to one of these national parks in Africa that was having serious trouble with poachers, you know, out there trying to get the ivory and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was training the local rangers with all kinds of Special Forces tactics and combat skills, you know, and like, a lot of because you know a lot of these guys are uh, from like rural places and they never uh, were part of like you know really advanced military units or anything like mm-hmm. that and a lot of these poachers a lot of them are you know that's a yeah it's a definitely a military operation. Um, anyway, I, I guess part of the reason why he was in the documentary though is he he's he's a big boy you know and he looks real tough he looks like yeah. he's like a, an Australian dude that like you know you just you wouldn't want him if, if you were a poacher, you'd be bummed if you ran into yeah, him. Yeah, really. But bummed. he's talking about how he goes, he goes vegan too. And he's, you mm-hmm. know, still looks like a pretty tough dude. And that's why he's in the documentary. He was just saying like, it actually happened to him while doing that job. He was, uh, he's like, you know, I'm out here protecting these rhinos and these elephants. And he's like, but I'm sitting here eating hamburgers every single day. And it's like, am I, what a hypocrite. So yeah. like, that was this whole thing about how he ended up getting plant-based. That's so interesting. I'm definitely, that's definitely on my list now. I would, I would say totally check it out. It's, it's, uh, they have an Olympic athlete. She's like a cyclist uh-huh. and she was supposed to hit, it was supposed to be like her retirement coming up. Like it was, she was like trying to get one more year of, uh, cycling in before she had to retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then she went completely plant-based and it, her performance improved so much that she actually was performing at the highest level in her entire career the yeah. year that she had planned on retiring That's and then incredible. she ended up staying uh at the, at the point when the documentary came out i think she had like competed like for like three more additional years past that point and she's like i feel great i'm not gonna stop so it's because <laughs> it gives you like i think what a lot of when you live like that you uh you heal better you mm-hmm. know, more, a lot more energy yeah uh, the energy thing absolutely but back to you. Enough about me talking about movies. That was the last <laughs> movie I think I'm going to bring up. I really. That's okay. I'm getting so many for my list. Okay. <laughs> Game Changers is a it's a fun documentary. I, I I'm a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, uh-huh. and I love that he's you know his because you know, when he was younger he was always like, you know, I eat steaks. I'll eat steaks all day long. And, yeah. You know, and now he's like he's older and he's like a little bit wiser and health's a little bit more important to him. Yeah. He's like you know really trying to uh advocate for plant-based and so yeah. go yeah, arnold man love that dude <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let's get back to you and uh 
we're done, I'm done talking about movies. Hold up. It's time to reach into the mailbag. Every week on the show, we reach in the mailbag to see if anyone has written a message to the show, and then we read it out loud. This week's message comes from Monica. Monica said, <clears throat> Hello, my dearest. I am Monica. I am single and never been married. Am interested in you for a serious relationship. If you are interested in me, please contact me directly with this email address so that I will give you my pictures and for more details about me. Thanks, Monica. I appreciate you writing into the show. Now back to the interview. I don't know if you mentioned anything about this, but uh, were you already a photographer before you were living in Kenya or did, was it really like just the magic of Kenya and the, and the animals that sparked that? So I think, yeah, I'd said it. I've always liked taking photos. Um, it was something that was important to me, but I was like, oh no, like I'd never do that as a career. It was really just being in the, in the Mara and having access to all these animals and all these moments. Um, I had the advantage of time. I think a lot of times, and, and anyone who's been on safari will realize this, is you can't just show up and like see a lion and just go, snap and that's a great photo i am so particular about the images i take and what i like i mean i can take hundreds of images and possibly like one or two um so it, it was for me it was a challenge wildlife photography because it's it's really tough you can't control obviously what the animals are doing you can't control the lighting you can kind of control your position but not really because they're moving yeah um, so I, yeah, I saw it as a challenge and it was something, I think it was something fun for me too, because it took me out of my, my day, which was really stressful, you know, running this camp, this organization, and then it was my, my release. Um, so I definitely, while I always loved photography, I didn't, I didn't foresee myself being a wildlife photographer. It seems like it would be, uh, like pretty meditative. It really, I mean, a lot of people talk about going into flow. Um, and I think definitely for me, when I'm photographing animals and when I'm in nature, I go into this sort of flow and I just, I really, really, really love it. Because even without the camera, I just love being around animals and in the wild. But when you're photographing and you're creating, um, I really feel like I'm doing, yeah, what I'm meant, meant to be doing. And like, uh, going back to the, uh hunters too and i'm yeah. not talking about subsistence hunters obviously i'm talking Perfect about hunters. but uh and i also i'm not even talking about the poachers uh because they're doing it for the ivory they're doing it for greed so they're not you know but but the people yeah. that go out and they hunt these animals for literally just the the trophy it's like get a camera and go and hunt it with a camera and don't be an asshole yeah there are a lot of these photos on the internet i see of you know photographers with their cam with their photo and being like this is my trophy so i i guess that's the way i see i i would i would never hunt an animal i mean i have no problem with people that hunt um for subsistence you know hunting deer or, or things like that if they're if they're eating it but i will never and can never understand people um you know hunting just for for their ego I, yeah it's insane. you know i'm actually i'm really glad that we're like that our culture has like evolved to a place too where when people do that and then they post their shit and the, and it like 
and like it's it's bad for business for them you know like yeah. i remember that a while back that uh that dentist of course like, yeah killed, lion. yeah yeah he'll yeah and then uh but it was good because it like fucked up his business and he like he lost his uh it job did. i think but it is so i so that was right when i first moved to kenya and it's been really interesting so while i personally that is not for me that is like it would be kind of laughable to think of myself doing that it's just not not on brand um, but it's an interesting argument because I have a lot of friends um, and acquaintances who are conservationists and while they themselves personally do not believe in it, they're not fully opposed. And I'll tell you why. It's because a lot of times the people that are trophy hunting are paying like um, insane amounts of money for a this to kill this argument. animal. Yeah. So it's an interesting argument. There's one, I think there's a, episode of This American Life where they, um, or Radio Lab, where they discuss this guy from Texas who pays, I think, $200,000 to hunt um, an endangered white rhino in Namibia. And these, when the white rhinos get older and they're male, they end up getting really aggressive and killing other rhinos. So first of all, they're killing other rhinos. They're past their prime, so they can't breed anymore. And so he's basically giving $200,000 that goes back into conservation to kill this one rhino. And I remember listening to that and thinking, hmm, it didn't change how I felt personally, but it was an interesting perspective because it just gives, it gives more of a full picture. But I do, I, I mean, I, I'm sticking to my guns and I believe that it's not good in any scenario, but it's yeah. interesting to hear these different perspectives. No, I, I totally, absolutely, 100%. I, I've heard that argument before, and it makes makes total sense yeah. that these 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 very wealthy hunters are providing so much money to the parks and to the conservationists mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. really they're doing more good than harm. I mean, especially that's, if they're... That's what some may argue, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you one thing, though. If I had 200000 bucks to blow on just whatever, <laughs> I wouldn't blow it on... I wouldn't go like, oh, you know what? I'm going to just drop this on a uh, shooting a rhino. <laughs> I know. Like, that, but that's the crazy part is people are so different. I don't know. That, that would never even cross my mind, but hey, teach their own. I guess so. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? I need to jump through some more of these because I, I wrote way too many questions and we're not going to have enough okay. time for all of them. Uh, but I, oh, I guess you've, you've probably never heard this podcast before. Mm -hmm. But at the end of every episode, we do a lightning round. So okay. it'll be like a bunch of questions really fast. And I <laughs> and we have to get to the lightning round. So I'm going to okay. uh, just jump through a couple more of these and then we'll, then we'll get to the lightning round. Okay. Um, but this is a question that I always have to ask when I have a wilderness oh. person on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's this. <clears throat> uh, what's the scariest encounter you've ever had with a wild animal? Uh, I'm trying to think which one, which one? Um, so <laughs> or I mean, if, if it's hard mine, to pick one, you could, I mean, you could just oh, do no, any, any random one. I, I know what it is. Okay. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of moments when I was either, when I was in the car on safari and, you know, like I said, animals would get really close and you're kind of just like, you, you're, you hold your breath and you don't even realize you're not breathing. And then all the, then they pass. And you're like, Oh my gosh. But um, when I first, moved to camp, I, 
I was a little skittish. I, I didn't like walking alone at night. I was afraid of loud noises. And rightfully so. Our camp wasn't fenced, so animals could come in and out. We had a camera trap, so I knew what was going on. Um, but I was sleeping, um, and I woke up in the middle of the night around 3 a.m., um, and there was all this commotion. And when hippos fight, they make these loud, like, squealing Oh, damn. Scary, horrible noises. And we, the camp was situated between two hippo pods. And oftentimes the rival males would fight. And they would be fighting over territory and who's going to take over the pod. But the place where they fought was the field right behind where I lived. Oh, and no. so throughout the years, I had many, <laughs> a, many a hippo pod. But this, in this particular night, it just seemed really close. So I woke up my partner and I was like, there are hippos fighting. They are way too close to the tent. And he was like, go back to sleep. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> like, they're not, they will never come near the tent. They will never touch the tent. Right after he said that, boom, hippo hits the tent. Oh my God. And um, the tent was obviously made up of poles and it, it hit the back pole and it snapped. And so the tent partially collapsed. Um, and so I'm sitting in the pitch dark in like this flimsy tent, thinking that a hippo might possibly be right on top of us. And so we just sit there and this hippo, you can hear it kind of like breathing in and out and obviously really injured. Um, and it was, it was really hurt. And um, it didn't puncture through the tent, but it was lying on top of it. And um, yeah, that was that was the scariest moment. It yeah. got up an hour later, and it it died the next day from injuries. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, but it was definitely a scary one because you think you're invincible often, and then you realize quickly that you're not. I would say, and that's better than just a, a scary story because hippos really will kill you. Like, oh yeah, legit. Like, and I and I, I know there's some kind of statistic that's like. Aren't they like the most dangerous animal? They're one of the top five. Well, actually, do you know what the most dangerous animal is? I think it's a moose. No, it's a mosquito. Oh, damn. Because of malaria. <laughs> <laughs> I always bastards. Ask, I would ask guests that because it's a trick question. You know, people think elephant or... But it's, um, I mean, so other than mosquito, um, crocodile, hippo, buffalo, elephant are all... It's all the big vegetarians, actually. Yeah. Except for crocodile. I hate crocodiles. Oh, that actually, that reminds me of uh, this question I really, really wanted to ask you. Because, like I said, uh, uh, I love animals. I know you love animals. Yeah. But be honest, is there any animals you really don't like? Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> it was number one. I, <laughs> I was going to say mosquitoes, number one. I mean, um, I don't love, no, no one's going to be like, actually, I really love mosquitoes. Um <laughs> But I really just, after that time with the hippo, I think they're cute and they're fun and they make these funny sounds, but they are just, I, I know when I look at them that they want to, they want to trample me. So, yeah. so hippo is public enemy number one. Yeah. Crocodile is probably public enemy number two. You think being plant-based would make them cool, but you know, no. I've met plenty of vegans that aren't cool too. Yeah. All these <laughs> plant-based big vegetarians, they just... They just wanna wanna trample you. All right. Before we move on, uh, 
to getting closer to the we're getting very close to the lightning round but i did want to ask you because you have great stories and i just want to get maybe one more story out of you is that something that's like a a doable thing um can you tell me a story from when you were a wildlife photographer or a camp manager in kenya that was either just a super cool experience or a super fun time or even just like super gnarly kind of like the the hippo one and I accept all forms of stories as long as it can be described as super something. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> so it's, it's wide open. So like any, any story you want to tell at all. Open. And I, I don't, it's no I parameters. Think, um, I think some of my favorite stories and some of my favorite memories from my time in Kenya were time that I spent with my friends and family on safari when they got a visit and I got to share this amazing time. So there's one time, and this was like one of the craziest things I witnessed. And my dad, my dad came and he came to visit me, I think three or four times. He just loved it. He's like into photography and loves seeing it. And this one time um, we were watching wildebeest, you know, the great migration cross the river. And that in itself, that was all he wanted to see. He was so excited. We watched them for about 20 minutes. They were all running, crossing. It was dramatic. I was getting all these amazing photos. And then we were like, amazing, we did it. His plane was in an hour, we were gonna go back. All of a sudden we turned to our right and there's a lioness and wildebeest in a standoff. Like they're just like facing off and the wildebeest is budding and the lioness is trying to to eat it, but she's pregnant so she can't get really close. So we watched for like half an hour as this lioness is like trying to get it and the wildebeest is trying to (laughs) Stuff. and it was kind of humorous actually but yeah um but truly like this amazing thing and then then he had to go catch his flight so we're like watching the wildebeest um standoff i'm on the phone with the airline being like he's on his way like please wait <laughs> and meanwhile like then we have to go because the plane had just landed at the airstrip and so we're like driving trying to get him on the plane he gets on the plane and then he flies over and they're still having this. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there were so many crazy and wild stories, but it's all those sort of funny, humorous ones and time when I really got to spend it with the people I loved and share, share it with them were my favorite. Absolutely. Um, We're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. Uh, (laughs) At the end of every episode, we do a lightning round. Um, Mm -hmm. And every lightning round has a theme, mm-hmm. but the theme of this lightning round is chaos and essentially random questions that I'm curious about. So there really is no theme whatsoever. I just wrote all these this down this morning because I was just curious. And okay. then I was like, oh, this is very different than all other lightning rounds because a lot of times there's a, there's a joke element where they're all supposed to be uh, like whatever. I, yeah. <laughs> you can go back and listen to an old episode and you'll see what I mean. Okay. But, uh, Let's just jump into it. So lightning cool. round, just uh, gut reaction. Don't think mm-hmm. about it. First thing pops in your head. And okay. this is really just mostly your opinions. So okay. you can't answer <laughs> wrong. It's impossible. Uh, right. What's your favorite city in Kenya? City? Yeah. Nairobi. What is your favorite restaurant there? Ooh, um, a tie between Cultiva and Talisman. What are they called? Cultiva. Cultiva? And- Talisman. Talisman. Talisman is like an old classic, amazing. My former boss owns it, so hi, Satyan. Um, oh, shout out then- Talisman. Next time anybody's in Nairobi, get some. Uh, what do they serve? 
what it's kind of food is that? It's, a, it's a mixture it's kind of international but it's amazing um and then cultiva is this incredible farm to table restaurant that just i think they just opened last year um and i am a big big fan very very vegan plant-based friendly oh sick all right um same vein man uh what's your favorite restaurant in new york I don't know about favorite, but ABCV, which is ABC Kitchen's uh, vegetarian restaurant. All right, you're here to hear first. Check out ABCD, what? V. <laughs> ABCV Kitchen in New York City for some oh, vegan. Also, um, my mom worked at a restaurant, Gabriel's, so I have to do shout out. Gabriel's. Oh, shout out Gabriel's. Amazing Italian food. All right. Everyone loves Italian food. Exactly. Uh, one more of those, and I'll stop. Oh, but I just, I'm just all the places that you've lived and I'm just curious because like I've, I travel to, I mean, it'd probably be a long time before I ever get to go to Nairobi, but I'm sure I'll be in New York and LA very soon. Uh, What's your favorite restaurant in LA? Uh, Gracias Madre. Gracias Madre. Uh, Is that, I'm going to guess that's Mexican food? Yes, but I think it's vegetarian Mexican food. Oh, tight. There's a theme. I wonder what my favorite restaurant in LA is. You ever been to a salad farm? I haven't. Really? It's right by USC. It's oh. like literally. Uh, oh, the cha- yeah, of course I've been to salad farm. <laughs> <laughs> you can get some plant-based stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, when I visited USC last time, uh, I was hungry and it was right down the street and I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. I go all the time. I don't know what I'm. All right. Animal question. This is going to be, this is a tough one. This is probably the toughest one on here. Uh How do gorillas get so swole if all they eat is fruit? Really good question. And I've, I've gorilla trekked a few times and I have no idea. I think they're just, all these vegetarians are just built big. They're just, body mass is large. I mean, obviously, like, yeah, like hippos are some of the most gigantic animals on the planet and their veggies, but like. And elephants. Yeah, and elephants, yeah. Was, yeah. But there's something particular about gorillas that remind me of bodybuilders. Like the yeah, way they're, they're just built. Really, really I'm like, why are you so strong? Uh, you only ever see them, like see them like eating like bananas and leaves. Yeah, they're forage. They just eat <laughs> leaves and, yep. All right. There might be a scientific answer to this, but I don't know. <clears throat> so let's just go for opinion. Which is smarter, an elephant or a dolphin? Ooh. I'm going to have to go elephant. I'm tempted to say elephant as well. Yeah, they're just... I love dolphins too. They some crazy thing. I mean, they communicate through... I guess um, dolphins use echolocation, but elephants communicate through vibrations from their feet. Yeah. Pretty cool. No, elephants are one of the coolest animals in the entire world. And anybody that goes out and shoots an elephant, elephant over their tusk is a piece of shit. What? It's World Elephant Day. Today is? Today. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, well, happy World Elephant Day. Happy World Elephant Day. <laughs> um, all right. We're, we're shooting through these. We're getting close. Uh, who was your favorite character from The Lion King? Oh. Mm, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it was probably Simba. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Simba. Like I, the second I asked the question, I was like, she's going to say Simba. Yeah. He was just so like cute, adventurous, but also like, you know, he came back. It was his duty to protect his land and fight against Scar. But I also liked the hyenas, which is an unpopular opinion. I'm a huge The hyenas fan. were, yeah, I loved him. 
they're funny. And they, I mean, they were terrifying when you read little, but I am a huge hyena fan. Um, yeah. They're one of my favorite animals. So world needs hyenas. You got to have really, them. They really do. Nature's, um, a, nature's a brutal, brutal place and you got to have them all. Yeah. And they're scavengers. They clear up everything. So we need them. Um, would you ever try the kiss of death on a cobra? I don't know what that is, but probably not. Like, do you, oh, what happens? Well, what happens is you probably get a shitload of adrenaline rush. And then also you spend the rest of your life knowing you're a badass. So uh, the kiss of death, you get, someone gets a cobra to go ahead and get in, into striking pose when they, uh-huh. when they fan out. That person's in front of the cobra. The cobra's looking at them. And you, in order to do the kiss of death, is you sneak up behind the cobra and you kiss it on the top of the head. That is insane and absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> I, li- I like snakes and I appreciate their role in our ecosystem and they're beautiful creatures, but I keep my distance. Okay, so we're going to go with no on the kiss of death on the cobra. <laughs> A hard no. Uh some of the listeners might disagree with you on, on your answer, but I want to know what you have to say about this. Okay. Uh, what is the coolest type of monkey? Ooh. There's some really cool monkeys and there's some like less cool Ooh. monkeys for sure. So it's there. Monkeys are camp and camp managers biggest enemies. So I, I love monkeys. I think they're great, but they were such a pain. Because yeah. we got, had two monkeys that moved into camp in my last year, and I think it was just to tease me. Yeah. And they would, like, steal things from the kitchen. And they would, they would mostly stay away, but they were, like, when they came, they were they meant trouble. Um, I really like colobus monkeys. I think they're really pretty. All right. You heard it here first. The coolest monkey is – what? how do you say that? Colobus. You heard it here first on my views of my own. The colobus monkey is the coolest monkey. So yeah. check them out. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, here's the last question. What do you think is the best mid-sized vehicle on the market right now? Oh, I know not a single thing about cars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Volvo. Go Volvos. Volvo. All right. Finally got an answer. You know, this is a question that I ask occasionally and nobody ever wants to give me an answer, but you finally did. Uh, so Volvo, uh, just like the station wagon. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, no, no, not station wagon. It's like, it's not an SUV. It's like a mid-sized thing. It's pretty comfortable, pretty fun. Go I Volvo. love Volvos. The only problem is if uh, if something goes wrong with them, you have to go to like the Volvo people to get them fixed. Like if you yeah. bust a tail or you know, bust a tail light, you can't just go to you know like anywhere. You got to go to like a special place. And <laughs> anyway, I got really good news for you. You just won the lightning round. Every single you didn't miss a single question. You got them all right. Perfect. Um. Before you go, can you tell uh, just all the listeners uh, where can people check out your photography? Yeah, so I have an Instagram and a website. So my Instagram is India Bulkley, and my website is indiabulkley.com. Um, and yeah, please check me out, write me a message. And I also sell prints. So if you're interested in um, getting a print, just contact me there. Absolutely. Oh, you know what? This is something I've actually never done on my podcast and I really should start doing it. Uh, and it would actually help to for anybody that follows uh, my, my views are my own on Instagram. I've already posted uh, a picture of, of you and your bio on there and mm-hmm. you're tagged in it. So anyone can just click on that and it goes straight to your Instagram. Cool. So that's an, a real easy way to get to it. 
And then also indiabulkley.com. That's spelled India and then B-U-L-K-E-L-E-Y. Yes. I did that without looking. I did that just right off the top of my head. Amazing. Shit, man. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me in my first podcast. So this was a really fun conversation and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, shit, if you're ever down in Nashville, hit us up and, uh, we'll show you like all the cool animals here. I love that. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my views of my own. If you'd like to contact me, hit me up at my views of my own.com or on Instagram at my views of my own underscore podcast or on Twitter at my views underscore podcast or at my views are my own dot podcast at gmail.com all right i'm gonna play this out with a track just sent over by pop fuzz records this is tackle box by surf tackle box i'm your fishing rod i wanna cast away deep in the day i hope we get a bite and make a memory let's catch the biggest fish the world has ever seen some drinks i read you poetry whatever you may need there's something in our way let's turn this boat around from ocean to the bay we'll find our sacred ground Whoa.